us. Um, Lord, I just, uh, you know, we acknowledge that we need you in our lives, Lord, in every area, um, especially in this area, uh, because it is uh, just so difficult in our culture, in our world, in our lives. I just pray that your word would challenge us where we need to be challenged and encourage us where we need to be encouraged um, and that you would just strengthen our faith today through a closer relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, Guys, if we need to adjust anything with this, just let me know. Hopefully it won't make the noises it's been making the whole time. (laughs) But I'll just keep going for now. Um, So in our culture sexuality is distorted. Um, Not only are LGBTQ relationships being normalized, um, but divorce, pornography, sex before marriage, unhappy marriages, adultery, uh, these are all a part of the reality of the world we live in today. Um, And unfortunately, these things are common even in the church. Um, I don't know how much you can believe the statistics you read about uh, pornography and things like that that exist in the church, but they're not, they're not good. Now, one of the things Jesus has been doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be in uh, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, is he's presenting a vision of what human flourishing is supposed to look like. He's saying that this is what it looks like if you want to live a successful, enjoyable life in the most meaningful sense. The whole Sermon on the Mount really is talking about what it looks like to live successfully as a human being through Christ. And as we might expect, the picture that Jesus presents is very different from the picture that we see when we look at our world. And often it's different from the picture that we see when we even look at our own lives. Um, in Matthew five twenty-seven through 30, Jesus, what he does is he presents a picture of sexuality that's radically different from life in 2023. As Jesus did with murder, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he teaches that our internal reality, what's in our heart, is just as important, if not more important, than our external actions. Who we are is just as important as what we say or what we do. Now, one level, this passage is pretty simple. Um, Jesus is just saying that sexual desire for someone you shouldn't is adultery, just like the physical act. That's pretty simple to understand. Um, But today I want to show you how this passage fits into the broader picture of sexuality in the Bible. And I want to show you today that it's not just our world that needs their perspectives changed, but it's also every one of our hearts my heart, and your heart. Uh, We need Christ in our lives to transform our hearts and to embrace God's design for sexuality. And I know this is such a tough topic, because I was thinking about it and preparing this week. Um, I was often just overwhelmed with uh, how much there is to say and the complexity of the issue and all of the hurt that exists in this room right now that I don't even uh, know about, but I know it's here. Um, it's just so difficult when we consider not only our own struggles with sexual sin, but also the struggles of others that have impacted our lives. But what I want you to see today is that is God's big picture design for human flourishing and sexuality. 
We're going to see God's design for human flourishing and sexuality. And the way we're going to look at it is we're going to see three values and one sacrifice. Three things that God is calling us to value and one thing that he's calling us to sacrifice. And we're going to use this passage in Matthew as a springboard to see God's picture of sexuality in all of Scripture. So we're going to start with verses 27 and 28, move to the rest of the Bible, and then use the rest of the Bible to bring us back to the rest of the passage, verses 29 and 30. So three values and one sacrifice. The first thing that God is calling us to value is to value others as whole persons. Value others as whole persons. Uh, Look at what Jesus says in verses 27 and 28. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think this passage applies to both men and women. Um, Both men and women struggle with lust and wrong desire. And it's common in Scripture for uh, the authors to use men to refer to both men and women. That's just how uh, they talked back then. And so let's look at first, what is lust? Now, Jesus simply says here, technically, you see the word in most translations is lust, but technically what he says is, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her, The word for lust is just the word for desire. Um, In Greek, technically, it doesn't have sexual connotations. For example, when the book of Hebrews says this in uh, Hebrews 6.11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. It's the same word, the same word that's used in uh, Matthew 5. So it's a little bit misleading, I think, to use our English word lust here, Because when we use the English word lust in our language, uh, we really only use it at this point in history in terms of sexual desire. We don't really use it, uh, you know, in the past they used it for other things, but we really don't. So uh, technically this passage really says, this is my translation, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think it's a little more accurate to say that Jesus is pointing out that sexual desire applied in the wrong ways or towards the wrong people is adultery. Jesus is really, he's he's elaborating on what was already in the Old Testament. If you take the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery, and put it together with the tenth commandment, which is you you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, Really, you get Jesus' teaching here. You shall not desire for someone, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. If you do, it's adultery. So he's connecting what's already there in the Old Testament, I think. And it's because of this that many people have defined lust in Scripture this way. They've just called it disordered desire. Because it's not the sexual desire in and of itself that's bad, It's that desire applied to the wrong people or in the wrong ways or ordered in the wrong way. So you might be wondering, so why is the point value others as whole people? Um, And this is a good question. We need the rest of uh, Scripture to see the connection. Now, one of the things when you look at the rest of the Bible that's so important for this discussion and and for uh, 
humanity in general is that Scripture teaches that human beings are made up of a mind, a will, and a body. All of these aspects come together to make what is a whole person, the mind, the will, and a body. And none of these parts are less valuable than the other. We all have a soul. That's another word to describe this. And that soul is embodied. It has a physical self. False teachers throughout the centuries have diminished the physical self, uh, diminished the value of the body in place of valuing the mind. But Scripture teaches that the whole person is valuable. When God created Adam and Eve, uh, he said, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's in Genesis 1. So he created the whole person in his image. It's not just our mind. As Christians, we have to believe that the whole self is valuable. Uh, When God created Adam and Eve, it's not like he just created a body as a necessary evil to house the treasure that's our mind. It's all part of who we are as valuable human beings made in his image. Um, Every person, every single person is beautiful because they're made in the image of God, including the physical aspects of who they are. I'm going to skip ahead here to uh, Genesis 29:17 because you see here that Scripture rightly calls out the beauty of Rachel. Um, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. This isn't in a lustful sense. It's just pointing out that Rachel was beautiful, and that was a good thing. Um, you also see this uh, applied to Joseph in Genesis 39, 26. Now, uh, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We have the same language here. And there's really many other examples of this in Scripture. Uh, and they show us that it's a good thing to recognize the beauty or handsomeness of another human being. It's part of seeing them as made in the image of God. Now, I don't know if you know what's going to happen on April 8th, 2024, in Lancaster, New Hampshire, at 3.27 p.m. Um, but what that is, is a solar eclipse. And I think we should probably all go, because that's going to be awesome. It's going to go for, the total solar eclipse is going to be for three minutes, from 3.27 to 3.30. Um, now, what happens in a solar eclipse? What happens is the brightness and splendor of the sun is hidden from us, because the moon is in the way right? The moon eclipses the sun. Now, if I hide behind the pulpit, for many of you, this is a pastor eclipse. You know, you're, the, the pulpit is blocking you from seeing, you know, my splendor and beauty. <laughs> and, but this is how it connects. One person described lust in this same way. Lust is looking at another human being in such a way that the body eclipses the soul. You're viewing them or you're objectifying them because you're treating them as only a physical being, only as a body rather than a soul, rather than as a holistic person made in the image of God. Lust keeps you from seeing the other person as a human being made in the image of God. Because you're reducing a person who has emotions, desires, choices, experience, history, thought. You're reducing all of that to only a body. So it's de 
humanizing that person. But even under all of this, the dehumanizing and objectification are even more sinister because, uh, as Pastor Dave actually put it to me this week when I was uh, talking to him about this, he said that lust uses others for self-gratification. So you're treating someone as a body rather than a soul for your own selfish desires. Uh, Lust is profoundly selfish because the reason for eclipsing the soul with the body, the objectification, the dehumanizing is your pleasure. Lust desires and uses one aspect of personhood at the expense of the rest of the self. And so do you see, I hope you see here how this connects to valuing others as whole persons. Lust is not appreciating the beauty of human beings, and we should appreciate this beauty. Um, Lust views another human being in a way that partitions their humanity for self-gratification. It's viewing a human being in such a way that does not respect them as human beings. And God, you know, he wants us to grow past this. He doesn't want us to just not lust. He wants us to view other human beings as made in the image of God as valuable. Um, One author said this. I thought it was really good. He said, you're not meant to overcome or conquer your attraction to beauty, but to allow your attraction to beauty to be purified. And he went on to discuss how one approach, you can, you can treat your life in this way, you can just co- totally give in to lust, which many do. Or you can just try to squash all of your desires and ignore them and push them down. That's not the biblical way. The biblical way is to actually learn how to value other people as human beings. And as most people know, the more you try to squish and smush down the bad feelings that you have, eventually they just explode and come back in a more powerful and real way that you hadn't even experienced before. And this has so many implications for us in the world. Um, You know, one of them is that God doesn't only want us to stop, you know, looking at pornography, for example, or letting our minds wander. He wants us as a church, as his people, to fight that human, for human beings to be valued in our world. So shining like a light as a Christian in our world means trumpeting the value of human beings in our work, our schools, our government, and our nation. And when you look at the pornography statistics, I, like I said, they're staggering, but it's not just because of how many people are watching it. It's also because of the connection to child abuse and sex trafficking. Um, I follow someone on Twitter, this lady who is uh, actively working to uh, fight for some of the main porn websites to be taken down. And the way that she's doing it is pointing out that they are often and regularly uh, promoting and letting child abuse videos on their website without monitoring them. And, you know, the same goes with uh, sex trafficking. It's all uh, connected. Many, many of the women in pornography um, have been coerced to be uh, where they are. And so fighting lust doesn't just mean getting your own heart right for the Christian. It means fighting for all people to be valued in our world. We want to be in a nation where women and men are valued as whole beings, and we must value them as whole 
persons. To value others as whole persons. This is really one of the most important things to uh, Jesus' statement in Matthew 5. Now, value number two, we must value marriage as holistic commitment. We must value marriage as holistic commitment. Um, God wants us to value, as we've been talking about, every human being is being made in his image. And he has designed that one man and one woman give their whole selves to each other in marriage. Biblical marriage between one man and one woman is meant to be holistic commitment. We're going to talk a bit about that, what that means. I think you see this point explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5, our scripture reading today. Uh, Paul first speaks to women in this section, and he tells them to submit to their husbands. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, just as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, notice here the language he uses. He says that you're supposed to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and he says it's a picture of how the church is subject to Christ. And, you know, we talk all the time about how we want to be a gospel-centered church. We want everything we do to be directed towards Christ. This is the picture that he's using. And you don't have to get into the debates of what exactly it means to submit to understand that he's talking about a holistic commitment here. That's the language he uses. It's the language of Christ. And really, he uses the same language when he talks to the husbands. It's a different word, but it's the same idea. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And how could the bar be any higher here? I mean, if you're a husband, um, Paul says that you should love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. That's a holistic commitment. What part of Christ did he withhold from the church? And, I, you know, I was thinking as we were singing, you know, it makes sense. Why would Satan attack marriage so strongly in our culture? It's because marriage is one of the clearest ways that we see Christ's love. It's meant to be a picture of who Christ is and how he has treated us. And Satan is actively working in our culture, as you know, uh, to destroy that. So marriage is meant to be holistic commitment. But Scripture also teaches very clearly that sexual commitment is necessary and wonderful in marriage. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 5, when he urges married couples to have regular sex. This is what he says. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. Why? That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come again together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So notice at the end of this passage here that uh, one reason for this command is self-control. And he expands on this by describing marriage as an antidote to lust in verse 9. Uh, this, he's talking to single people here, people who are not married. Uh, but if they, they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So for those of you who are single or not uh, married, 
um, if you are struggling with sexual desire, and not everyone will, uh, Paul, for example, uh, didn't need to get married, but if you are struggling with sexual desire, marriage should be a God-designed uh, way for you to address lust in your life. That's what Paul says here. Um, and this means that, especially for younger people who want to get married when they grow older, one of the things that you need to be doing now in your life is working to grow to be the type of person who's ready for marriage. And there's many aspects to that, and that's not necessarily popular in our culture, but uh, according to God's design, that is meant to be one of the goals of your life. Now, if you only read Paul and these verses we just read, um, you might think that sex is just a necessary guard against sin. Uh, but the Bible speaks about it more favorably, um, especially in the Song of Solomon. Um, if you cut out, if you never read the book of Song, the Song of Solomon, if you cut it out, um, you really have a truncated view of biblical sexuality. Um, it's a beautiful book that moves through the rhythms of relationship. Um, if you read it carefully, you can tell that the man and the woman, they go through these stages multiple times through the book. So they go through separation, then desire, then alt obstacles, and then union. And if you think about life, you know, that's life. We're going through times of separation, we're going through obstacles, we're, we're going through desire, and we're going through union. That's just part of the rhythms of, you know, even a marriage relationship. Um, but the book does help us to understand sexuality uh, because it teaches that sexual desire in marriage is a good thing. And it gets much more detailed than most of us would be comfortable hearing right now. And so what I'll do is I'll read you some of the tame parts. Uh, you know, you even have um, Jewish boys weren't allowed to read this book until they reached a certain age. Um, don't let anyone tell you that it's just a picture of Christ's love for the church because just go read it um, and you'll, <laughs> you'll get it. Um, but anyway, some of the tame parts where you get the sense that sexual pleasure in marriage is not meant to be a chore or a necessary evil, but it's meant to be something that both the husband and the wife love. Um, speaking of the husband in chapter 5, verse 14, uh, his hands are rods of gold set with barrel. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Positive language, talking about the body in a way not appropriate for all people. Uh, and then talking about the uh, woman in chapter 7, verse 1, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the, the, work of the hands of a skillful workman. And you also see in verse 12, kind of the husband and the wife coming together, um, they say, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Now, how, is, how does all of this fit together? God has designed men and women who are united together in marriage to commit to one another with every ounce of who they are. This includes emotional commitment, relational commitment, sexual commitment, all of it. We have to value marriage as holistic commitment. Uh, one of the most important books I read last year was Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, it's not an easy read, but it's worth reading if you uh, 
if you uh, desire to do so. Um, what he does in that book is he traces the roots of transgenderism uh, in Western culture and shows how, beginning all the way back in, with Rousseau in the 1700s, that Western culture was on a path to psychologize the self. Now, you probably haven't heard that language before, but it's important. Uh, what this means is that your personal mental awareness of reality is most important. AKA, your mind is what's most important. And what I think in my mind is more important than physical reality. So that's why it's psychologizing the self. What I think in my mind is more important than what exists in physical reality. And this is why people in our culture are willing to adjust or change their body to match up with what their mind tells them that they are. Because what you feel in your mind and what you think in your mind is more important than what your body might say or be. But I think we can commit similar errors in our marriages. Uh, God has designed us to commit to our spouse with everything, and any time we think that we can only commit to our spouse in one area, we are separating the self in the same way that transgenderism does. So, for example, relational or emotional commitment in your marriage without sexual commitment separates the mind and body in an unbiblical way. At the same time, sexual commitment without relational or emotional commitment also violates God's design. And we can commit these errors both inside and outside of marriage. If we go back to lust, for example, lust and sex before marriage, it's ultimately wrong because it's a level of physical intimacy that doesn't match the level of relational and emotional intimacy. You're trying to connect with someone physically in a way that you haven't connected with them relationally or emotionally or with, you know, the lifelong commitment type of thing. Um, this can obviously still happen in marriage when a husband or a wife expects, desires, or demands uh, sexual intimacy without committing themselves to emotional intimacy. It's really the same thing. Now, on the other hand, a husband or wife can expect, desire, or even demand emotional commitment without committing themselves physically. Um, in the past, one pastor I listened to called this the prudish view. I think this is what we would have... Uh, we don't really use that word anymore. Um, but even if someone is not married, I think we understand that there's a level of emotional commitment that should be enjoyed only in marriage. Emotional commit with, commitment with someone other than your spouse is emotional adultery. And there's a really whole angle of this passage that we could go into where if desire is not just a sexual word, um, it's any of our desires applied in the wrong way to another person that makes us unfaithful, which would be adultery. And you could probably apply that to the emotional aspect as well, but I didn't go that direction uh, today. Um, so God has designed that all of our levels of commitment match. Marriage is holistic commitment, and all of our emotional, relational, or physical commitment should only be given to our spouse. Now, many of you, maybe especially if you're young, think that the Christian view is lame um, or just restrictive. I know I thought that when I was young. 
Um, and maybe if you're not willing to articulate that, that might be what you feel <laughs> inside. Um, but if that's the way that you feel, I think you just don't understand the quality and goodness. That quality and goodness in marriage relationships are best found when one man and one woman commit to each other holistically. Um, the relational, the emotional, and the physical aspects um, are all better when taken together rather than separated. They just are. They're better when they all come as one package rather than, se- rather than separated apart. Now, I know for many of you, this is a source of suffering um, and hurt. Um, some of you uh, have lost your spouse. Some of you are single and want to marry, but it hasn't happened. Um, you may have experienced abuse or had a model of marriage growing up or taught to you that has twisted your view um, and made it difficult, if not impossible, to commit to someone in the physical and emotional ways that God is calling you to. Um, Even for many of us who are married, our experience hasn't been one of holistic commitment, which leads to further hurt and pain. And for some, it's even led to divorce. And uh, we're going to talk about divorce next week, uh, by the way. Um, But there's so much hurt in this room And this subject might even bring up more hurt for you. Uh, But learning to value marriage as God has designed will help you because he knows your pain and knows what it looks like for human beings to flourish in relationships, even on this side of heaven. Um, You know, one aspect of this that's really important and difficult is that the Bible teaches us that he wants us to confess our struggles in Christian community. You see this in Hebrews 3 or Galatians 6. Uh, We have to be willing to talk with other brothers and sisters in Christ about uh, our struggles in these areas. And obviously, when it comes to struggles that we have in these areas, these are some of the most intimate, difficult things to talk about. But the design in Scripture is that we be willing and we talk about them. And so I would encourage you to find Uh, another couple that you can talk to in this congregation. Um, And, you know, any of the pastors are willing, and we would love to to spend time talking with you if you're struggling, so I'd encourage you to do that. But, you know, all of the good and bad in our relationships is meant to point us to Jesus. All of it. It's meant to point us to Jesus. If we want to value God's design for sexuality, both in valuing people and valuing marriage— We have to value Jesus to value others. It's impossible to value other human beings as whole people and to value marriages as God has designed without valuing Jesus, without a close personal relationship with Jesus. It's impossible. Christ proved his love to us through the gospel. We know passages like Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, if you're in Christ, he loves you even in the moment of your sin. Uh, I, was, I recently read a book called uh, Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools, pretty cool title, um, where the author described how he was a pastor, and in the past he had a pornography addiction, and he escaped it because in the moment of his sin, he was overcome with the realization that Christ loved him in the moment of his sin. 
And that's what helped him break free. It was the love of Christ that he experienced and realized in a powerful way that give, gave him the strength to break free from his addiction. Now, Christ's foundational motivator for us is love, not fear. That's a good thing to keep in mind, especially because the passage, as we'll see in a bit that we're on today, uh, kind of seems to be coming at it from the fear angle. Um, but under all of it is, is the love of Christ. Um, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now get this at the end here. He says, on these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, hung, hang all the law and the prophets. So every command in the Old Testament is under the two commands of loving God and loving neighbor. Now back in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus is warning to forsake lust in our lives exists because he is a loving God who has loved us and desires us to live in love of him and love of our neighbor. As I said before, we're never going to be able to treat others in the holistic way we've been talking about without the love of Christ fully rooted in our hearts. He's the only true source and example of, of that kind of love. Any other love is a cheap substitute, which means that you're trying to live a life that's lust-free without the love of Christ rooted in your heart. It's not going to work. Um, and if we also remember all the suffering and hurt that we've gone through, uh, people are always going to fail us. Um, our best intentions to value others and to commit holistically will never be enough. Uh, but Christ will never fail us. He's never going to fail us. Christ, you know, through the Old Testament, God uses the example of adultery to compare the relationship between him and his people. And so when his people reject him, he calls it adultery, committing adultery against God. But the thing about Jesus is he never commits adultery with us. We're going to fail him. He is never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And that's why marriage is meant to be built on his example of love, not the puny example of human beings who always mess up. We have to look to Jesus. He's the only worthwhile anchor for your lives. He's the only worthwhile source of freedom and peace from the pain that you're experiencing in your life. He really is. We can't believe anything else, and we can't turn to anything else. Christ is the source of our freedom. He's the source of our life. He's the source for understanding love in this world. So we have three values. Value others as whole persons, value marriage as holistic commitment, and value Jesus to value others. But we also have one sacrifice. Jesus, who is the perfect example of sacrifice, is calling us to sacrifice what is precious to us to be like Jesus. If you take Matthew 5, 
and the rest of the scriptures, especially the New Testament, you see that the Bible teaches that sin is only fought through a relationship with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go back to Matthew, so we're going to go back to the last uh, few verses now, we see that Jesus, what he does here is he places the responsibility on the one lusting rather than on other people. Um, This isn't to say that other people are unrelated, but that the Christian response when it comes to lust, desire, sexual sin, is not to try to blame others or to try to fix others for our sins, but to fix our own sinful hearts through Christ. Jesus talks about nothing except the heart of the one who is sinning here. And Jesus' harsh statement in verses 29 and 30, you see them here, we'll read them in a second, uh, it's the emphasis of this passage. And so it would be wrong not to emphasize it. Um, he, he teaches on amputation and hell here twice. He kind of repeats his idea twice, which means it's important. And if you just count the words, this, the last two verses account for 79 of the, ver- of the words, and the first two account for only 40 of them. So this is kind of what he wants to, you to see. He's repeating it. He's emphasizing it so that we get it. And what he says here is if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that you should literally cut your eye out. Everyone here has both eyes. And if you don't, I don't think it's because you cut your own eye out. (laughs) Um, But people throughout church history have interpreted it this way. Um, Origen, for example, castrated himself because of this passage. But we know that he isn't saying this, I think, because, you know, you look with two eyes, and if you cut one eye out, you look still the same. It's the same looking. Um, And you grab with a hand, but if you cut one hand off, you still have another hand to grab. So I don't think he's talking about literally getting rid of your eye or hand. He's also not saying, as we've discussed, that you're sanctified in your own strength, And that's something important to grasp, because if you take this passage apart from the rest of Scripture, you might think, if I want to be free from lust, all I need to do is to work hard and to cut out bad things in my life, and I'll be free. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches only that freedom is come foundationally through relationship with Christ by the power of the Spirit. He's also not saying, I don't think, that if you mess up, that you're going to hell. But this is important to grasp. You've got to get this. Jesus is also not speaking in hyperbole. He's not speaking with hyperbolic language. What do I mean by that? He's speaking in metaphor, but he's not exaggerating. He's saying this is how serious that you have to take sin in your life. Sin is so deadly and serious that you have to be willing to cut it out, to amputate it, to sacrifice things that are precious to you because sin leads to hell. That's clearly what he's teaching here. 
And to water it down, to try to say he's not as serious as it sounds, is to take the teeth out of Scripture that Christ intends uh, to grab a hold of your heart. It's so easy to be desensitized to what he's saying here. I mean, you know, how many times have you read this and you're like, oh, yep, cut out your eye, yep, that's what Jesus is saying. But don't miss that this is a dreadful picture. It's bad enough to lose an eye, right? You know what's way worse? Cutting it out yourself. I don't know if you know this guy here on the screen with these beautiful mountains. Uh, This is Aaron Ralston. Um, In 2003, he's hiking in a canyon in uh, Utah when a boulder fell on him, pinned both of his arms. He got one of them free, um, and he was trapped for six days. And he did everything he could to try to get out of there. He was drinking his own urine so that he wouldn't die of uh, thirst. And in a last-ditch effort on day six, he amputated his arm with a dull pocket knife. He had to break the bones of his own arm because the knife couldn't do it. And he made it out alive. And now he's a, a, a uh, what do you call it, motivational speaker. <laughs> That's one path to stardom, right? Um, and, I mean, if you go read the story, they give more details than I just gave. And it's hard to hear about this real-life example of someone who cut off one of their arms so that they would live. Not too different from what Jesus is saying. And notice here that Jesus isn't talking about just cutting out the bad things in your life. It's not like he's saying, don't go to a strip club or don't go to a pornography site. He's saying, be willing to cut bad things out of your life, things that are precious and good to you, like your hand and your eye. Those aren't bad things. They're good things that Christ has given you to glory in. But be willing to cut them out. What are you willing to do to be holy? That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to you here. You should be willing to go to any extent for a relationship with Jesus. And there's so many practical directions we can go go with here. Um, you know, pornography, for example, I was reading all these statistics, and I know there's a lot of sermons who just, they spend time giving you all the statistics, and uh, I just didn't want to go in that direction. But um, 70% of pornography is viewed on smartphones. 70%. That's a high percentage. Maybe you need to get a dumb phone, a flip phone. You remember those? It, God is calling you for, to make serious decisions, in your life, in this area. And it would apply similarly to if you're struggling with um, emotional adultery. So we're not just talking to the guy who's struggling with pornography. Um, In Mark, in the book of Mark, Jesus actually uses the same example and applies it to other sins. And so we see that what he's trying to communicate is not, he's not just communicating, this is how you handle lust. But really what he's communicating is, this is how you handle sin. So what are you willing to do? For some of you, it might be you have to get a new job. You have to go to a new gym. You have to stop being friends with certain people who are precious to you. I don't know what it is. You know your own 
experience and what you're going through right now. But please, whatever you do, don't water down what Jesus is saying here and act as if he's not talking in a serious way. We have to be willing to take sin as seriously as Jesus takes it and be willing to do what it takes to cut it out of our lives. Now, if we put all of Jesus' teaching together, we understand that lust is fundamentally selfish because we are objectifying another person for our own self-gratification. Jesus is calling us to the opposite. Lust is selfish. Jesus is calling us to sacrifice ourselves. And that's the way of Christianity. Christ sacrificed himself for others, and he's calling us to live sacrificing ourselves for other people and loving God and loving our neighbor. Um, I just want to encourage you with two things as we close today. I know that kind of ends on a um, hard portion of the passage, and I didn't mean for Aaron Ralston to be up there that whole time. (laughs) Um, But the passage ends there. And he goes on to talk about divorce in the same context next week. Um, we, we separated it just because there's so much to talk about. Um, but we can't water down God's teaching to us in Scripture. So I want to encourage you with two things. One of the things I've been uh, emphasizing throughout is that you have to keep Christ central in your life. So often we try to fight to be holy and fight to live a certain moral life apart from Jesus Christ. That's our natural bent, living to be holy apart from Jesus. And you are always going to drift there. And I want to encourage you today, drift intentionally. Don't move your life intentionally to love Jesus and to have a personal relationship with him. Please don't try to fight this sin or any other sin apart from Jesus Christ because that just means you're just... uh, someone who's working to be moral, just like any other religion, the Muslims or the Jews or or an atheist who's trying to be moral in his own strength. Second, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I think, especially with this sin, um, that we have to sacrifice is our pride. And we have to confess our struggles in the community of the church, in the church community. One of the other things that's kind of pervading our reality in the Western world is individualism. We think that we can be healthy Christians on our own, and the Bible's teaching is that that, that's false. You can't be a healthy Christian apart from the church community in the way that God has designed. And so uh, whether it's pornography or uh, physical adultery or marriage struggles, we have to talk about it with people we trust. We have to get to the point where we are willing to humble, humble ourselves and say, I'm going to willingly reveal that I'm not as holy as it might look like on the outside for the sake of being like Jesus and loving other people. And look, all of us, there's none of us in this room that are better than anyone else. We're all struggling. We're all dealing with sin. We all need Jesus. One of the wonderful things that, about knowing that every single one of us is a sinner is that it equalizes us all in the same playing field. We are all sinners in need of Jesus. And any time that we act as if that's not true in some kind of superiority or anything else, um, it's, it's denying the gospel, the truth that all of us are sinners in need of Christ. 
And so please, I would encourage you to humble yourself, uh, to sacrifice your pride uh, for the sake of growing to be like Jesus and learning to value other people and to value marriage um, in the church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for even the passages that we'd rather skip over. And I just pray that um, we would learn to value what you value uh, through your strength, Lord. I pray that uh, by your strength we would be willing to sacrifice what you have called us to sacrifice. Um, I pray for all the people who are struggling and hurting today that you would just give them peace, Lord. Um, We know that there's so much more uh, to be said and so much more that could encourage them, Lord, and I just pray that um, you would encourage them. Um, I pray that we would step up for those in our church who are struggling. I pray that when they talk to us that we wouldn't uh, look down on them no matter what it is, but that we would treat them in the way that you treat us with your love, Lord. Um, I just pray you bless the rest of our week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.